Al Jazeera podcast. Israel's war on Gaza has bombed an area with an intensity that military analysts say hasn't been seen since the Second World War. Most of the weaponry is supplied by the United States. Is this war different to others in terms of its scale and speed? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Okay, let's bring in our guest now. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is Colin Clark, Research Director at Global Intelligence and Security Consultancy, the SOFAND Group. In Bath, in the UK, is Patrick Burry, a Defence and Security Analyst at the University of Bath. And in London is Sam Perlow-Freeman, a Research Coordinator at Campaign Against Arms Trade in the UK. Thank you all very much for joining us on Inside Story today. Uh, first of all, Colin, if I can begin with you, can you just give us uh, your initial thoughts on the scale and uh, dis- of, of destruction uh, in Gaza in terms of the number of civilians killed in a very short space of time? How would you characterise what is happening at the moment? Yeah, it's a massive and overwhelming humanitarian catastrophe. I think in the uh, introduction, uh, you mentioned 17,000 civilians killed, which is just an unbelievable loss of life. Uh, the images that we're seeing every day from Gaza are heart-wrenching. Uh, and I think, you know, as uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke about recently, uh, the Israelis, uh, whatever tactical victory they're getting, uh, will come at a strategic loss because of the images that the world uh, is seeing on a daily basis. And I think uh, I completely agree with Secretary of Defense Austin. Um, I think a lot of what's happening right now is counterproductive. And this hunt to eliminate or destroy or eradicate Hamas, uh, you know, at, at what cost is what I would ask. Yeah, uh, Patrick, if we can just continue on with, with that thought, the strategic loss that uh, Israel could suffer here. I mean, Israel is constantly, right from the very beginning of this war, has said that its aim is to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. But from a military perspective, I mean, is this aerial bombing campaign that we've seen for two months now, is this the right way to go about trying to do that? Well, it's the easier way, isn't it, Tom? And, you know, on the annihilation strategic aim, as Colin has pointed out earlier, you know, all Hamas have to do is survive in some form, and they've won, uh, if that's your... And it's very hard to completely eradicate any terrorist groups the last, you know, 20 years at least have shown us. So, um, but look, the air bombardment, yeah, it's the easy way of doing it. They've stand off. Obviously, Israeli intelligence was caught napping here from numerous different mm. reasons. So their their eyes and ears into the Gaza Strip are not as good as it were, uh, as it was at one point. And, um, and as a result, you, you, you select your uh, stand off munitions and you bombard them heavily reliant as you mentioned on the US to keep your your stocks rolling um, and clearly again the targeting uh, the targeting cells here and the crucially the idea what this hinges on in this bombardment it is intense it's intense in relation to Mosul it's intense in relation to what we saw happen in CERT it's intense in relation to even the battles in Mariupol uh, and 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 Bakhmut probably on a similar intensity, but the difference with those urbanised battles was just most of the civilians had left, yeah, and yeah. there'd been corridors to get people out. That's the crucial. So that's why we're seeing. Secondly, 
It's incredibly uh, densely populated area and uh, highly urbanized. So in your in your introduction, when you talked about the same kind of damage to buildings as the Second World War, yeah, it is. But there's a there's a there's a an element here of everything being condensed, which is which is actually adding to it as well. Doesn't excuse it, but it helps start to explain some of the reasons why you're seeing such high uh, casualty and destruction notes. But also, it comes back to this idea of their munitions that they're selecting and the principles under law of armed conflict, which are about proportionality, which must be balanced. The risk to civilians must be balanced to the concrete and direct military gains to be made from taking that action. And that's ultimately for IDF lawyers to understand. Mm. And after they've been attacked, yeah, those, those, that idea of proportionality, it's not actually written down exactly what that should be. So in the targeting cells, they draw radiuses around why, where they think they are. They can say that we didn't think uh, there were that many civilians there. They can say that this Hamas commander is incredibly important and therefore we're selecting, or there's a bunker there and we're selecting a 2,000 pounder and they can drop it on it. And if it kills, mm. you know, uh, 10 civilians, 100 civilians, you know, the Israelis are just like, well, we went through the process of proportionality. Right. Uh, Colin, I, w I want to pick, on, uh, pick up on one thing that Patrick was talking about there. I mean, is this campaign from Israel even actually working at this point in time? Because according to the Israeli military, of the 30,000 Hamas fighters that they believe are in, are in Gaza, they've killed about 5,000 of them. That's only roughly about 16%. After two months, what do you make of how effective their campaign has been to this point in time? Well, you know, I was actually just this morning reading an article from uh, Robert Pape in Foreign Affairs, uh, one of the, the world's leading experts on air power and, and coercive power. And, and, you know, I agreed with the thesis of the article, which is that the campaign is not working. Um, this far in, um, this many weeks into the conflict to, uh, to be at this point, uh, to me, it's clear that uh, what's started as perhaps, you know, uh, strategic military objectives has potentially morphed into revenge and vengeance and collective punishment, uh, some would argue, as Pape does in the article. So, mm. uh, you know, only eradicating 5,000 of 30,000 Hamas uh, militants, not a, a, a total surprise to me, you know, given the infrastructure in Gaza, given the tunnel network. Uh, but this is hard fighting. This is dense urban warfare. Uh, and I think, you know, if you think about some of the high-ranking Hamas commanders, they were likely shuttled out of the country uh, into potentially Lebanon, into Iran, elsewhere, uh, before the actual attack on October 7th. So um, the Israelis are not going to be able to eradicate Hamas. And, and that says nothing about Israel's military prowess. This is one of the most powerful militaries in the world. It says more about, you know, the feasibility of completely eradicating a terrorist organization. So I think the aims and objectives need to be properly scoped, and Israel needs to immediately begin thinking about how to attach its military strategy to some kind of a political outcome or negotiated settlement, because that's the only way this is actually going to end. Yeah. Sam, I, I want to uh, go to you now. I, I know you and your organization have been investigating uh, the arms that are being supplied to Israel. What have you f found so far, and has anything surprised you? Well, there's a lot of the U.S. arms trade to Israel is well known, as your reporter said. All the aircraft that um, the, the fixed-wing combat aircraft that Israel uses in Gaza, the F-35s and F-16s, come from the U.S. along with a lot of the munitions. Um, since October seventh, 
the, the US has supplied uh, by December 1st around 15,000 bombs and 57,000 artillery shells, uh, according to media reports. That includes those 100 bunker buster bombs mm. um, that um, Patrick was talking about. Uh, Israel, of course, produces a lot of its own arms. But, of course, the modern arms trade has a very wide and international supply chain. So a lot of co companies and countries are involved in the production of aircraft like the F-16 and F-35. With the F-35, the, the stealth fighter, the UK in particular produces 15% of the value of every aircraft produced, in, including those that go to Israel. This includes things like the um, the rear fuselage, the uh, a lot of electronic systems, uh, the ejector seat, uh, all, all sorts of, mm. of system of subsystems. Uh, and we actually got on a freedom of information request a list of all the UK companies that are involved in this program. And it is it is dozens of companies that are involved. Now, we don't know if any new F-35s have been supplied since the war started, but combat aircraft, especially in an intense campaign like this, need a constant supply of spare parts. So undoubtedly, all the aircraft that Israel has is going to, uh, going to be continually needing new spares from all, from all or most of these companies involved in this international supply chain. Mm. Uh, I want to go uh, to you now, Patrick. Uh, you touched on this a little bit before, but can you just give us a little bit of historical context? Uh, I mean, how does this compare? You mentioned Mosul, but how does this compare with other bombing campaigns that we have seen over the last few decades? Well, yeah, Mosul was a direct comparison because in the first week of the Israeli response, they dropped more bombs, I think it was 6,000, than the US and its coalition partners dropped against ISIL in the Battle of Mosul in a month. Um, so that, that's comparatively, mm. you know, how it adds up to something recent as, as six years ago. Um, Look, in terms of like, look, war warfare, what we're seeing is becoming more organized. There's more, more cities, uh, they're more densely populated, uh, and armies are actually smaller. And so warfare and the advantage to the defender uh, means that it, it, it coalesces in these areas, uh, which makes it a very, very destructive. We've seen Aleppo destroyed, Mosul destroyed, Sirte destroyed. Um, we've seen, as I mentioned, Mariupol and, and Bakhmut. So it's happening in a, a broader trend of more urbanised warfare. Um, and I think, un and unfortunately for all those stuck in Gaza, it's a particularly, as I mentioned, densely populated, densely urbanised, and therefore mm. more lethal environment. Um, and as I mentioned again, this, this concept of proportionality, which uh, is obviously, you know, for example, I served in Afghanistan in the British Army, and we, in 2008, we were in a fairly fairly rough place called Sangin, uh, where we took a lot of casualties. And halfway through the tour to, to stop civilian casualties, we weren't allowed to fire 81 millimeter mortars anymore. Now they're fairly small in terms mm. of lethality. We couldn't call in 105 millimeter guns. This is at a, or, uh, you know, an order of magnitude way below what uh, what what, what uh, Israel are using at the moment. In actually a situation which is relatively similar. It was a high-intensity counterinsurgency campaign. But yeah. again, as Secretary Lloyd said, 
You know, what we were trying to do there was separate the insurgents, the narco-Taliban, essentially, from the people uh, as best we could. And the Israelis, this is completely lacking, as Colin mentioned. It's just creating a counter-terrorism nightmare, I would say, mm. for the next decade in the region and beyond. Um, yeah. uh, and so, uh, you know, another course, instead of standoff air power, could have been, especially in this second phase after the ceasefire, could have been much more cordon sanitaire start to gain the intelligence picture you need. You can be damn sure there's Palestinians in there who aren't fans of Hamas after this, yeah. after what's been brought on them, in you know, and not in their name, but um, and start to build the intelligence picture again and use your special forces and surveillance advantage, which you're going to need to build up again to basically get in there and in a dirty war, degrade uh, Hamas military wing, especially as to absolute minimum that you can. Yeah. Colin, for decades, countries have, have sought to, to bomb their enemies into submission, but also to try and shatter uh, civilian morale. I mean, the theory is that when uh, pushed to breaking point, populations will actually rise up and, and, I guess, push back against their own governments. I mean, we have seen that not work with Russia uh, bombing Ukraine. That, that obviously hasn't didn't work there. It didn't work when the Germans bombed uh, the UK in World War II or when the Allies bombed uh, Germany extensively in World War II as well. Do you think that there is any chance of it working here? It just flies in the face of the empirical evidence that we have on counterinsurgency. Uh, I spent 10 years at the RAND Corporation, a think tank in the United States, uh, and was lucky enough to be able to have several years carved out and devoted my time to studying every single insurgency from the end of World War II to 2009, uh, 71 in total, based on our uh, coding schema. And we found that historically, uh, what we called an iron fist approach, which is certainly what the Israelis are pursuing at the moment, uh, is counterproductive. And mm -hmm. actually, the counterinsurgents that pursue that approach, some might call it, you know, scorched earth, uh, they lose more than they win. So they're actually ceding the advantage to their adversaries and Hamas. Uh, and I would just echo something that Patrick said earlier. When uh, you know Netanyahu and the IDF came out very early on in the conflict and said that the stated goal was to completely eradicate Hamas, they essentially did Hamas a huge favor. It was a strategic communications failure on the Israelis' part. Because as Patrick men mentioned, all Hamas needs to do now to, to, to declare victory and I'd put, you know, quotation marks around victory, is survive. And that's certainly something they're going to do. The question isn't, is, is Hamas going to survive? We know that's the case. How, you know, how much intact will Hamas be yeah. when all is said and done, smoke clears? And yeah. in what form will, will they continue? Uh, Sam, you mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about bunker bombs. And the U.S. has supplied, uh, well, according to the Wall Street Journal, 100 to Israel. Can you just explain mm. uh, to people who might not know exactly what they are, just how deadly and how widespread the destruction can be from just a single, bun uh, a single bunker bomb? Um, I, I'm not an expert on, on the precise uh, lethality of different uh, munitions, but these are, as we're told... 900 kilogram, 2,000 pound bombs. Um, and so that is an enormous amount of destructive power in what, as uh, uh, our other panelists have said, is a very, very densely populated area. And we have seen cases like in Jabali refugee camp, where a single strike has killed dozens, if not hundreds, mm. of Palestinians at one, mostly civilians, one go. We don't know if those 
bunker bust busters. But um, at any rate, the munitions that Israel is using are clearly uh, big enough to cause such utterly devastating, totally disproportionate uh, death and, and injury and destruction. Mm. And I would say, in um, response to what uh, my colleagues here have, have been talking about, Israel, if, if Israel's goal is military victory over Hamas, their strategy doesn't make sense. But if, as several Israeli ministers and members of the Knesset have been saying, if their goal is to actually depopulate Gaza, to make the entire Gaza Strip unlivable and force the population into Egypt, then it kind of does make sense. OK. I guess because these are supplied by the United States, Patrick, I mean, it's giving Israel these weapons. Is the US explicitly endorsing their use? And then, I guess, if you take it a step further, uh, further is the US complicit in any civilians that are killed by the Israeli use of US weapons? Yeah, well, just on the on the bunker buster thing, so usually when they do these weapons tests, they do it, if they're trying to work out lethality, they usually do them in the open, right? So it's obviously more lethal in an urbanised environment with buildings collapsing around you. But a bunker buster, uh, uh, normally, as far as I understand, depending on the payload, would have a lethal, what we call in the, in the British military, a lethal blast area of at least 100 metres radius. So that's, mm. you know, draw that around to make out the diameter. Um, so just on that, yeah, look, I, it's an interesting one. Clearly, there's different, and Colin might be better, uh, you know, positioned to speak about the inside the, the Biden administration than me. But I think there's cer certainly different uh, people pulling in different directions about what should be done here. Um, although Biden seems fairly clear uh, that he's going to stay steadfast in his support for Israel. Certainly, you know, the US has a lot of leverage here if it wanted to use it. Um, and, and, of course, you know, where does it get its Iron Dome? Uh, where does Israel get its Iron Dome uh, missiles from, for example, to protect itself is, is the U.S. So uh, I think the wheels would come off the wagon, although they do have an indigenous, uh, you know, big indigenous uh, uh, industrial, military industrial uh, facilities. The, I, th I think the, the wheels would come off the wagon in terms of the air campaign pretty quickly if America decided that enough was enough. Right. Well, Colin, I will throw it over to you then. I mean, how much pressure is on the US to, to scale back uh, the, the amount of money and weapons that it is giving Israel? I guess it depends pressure from whom. Uh, the United States, when you look at uh, the domestic uh, politics here, is getting pulled in two directions. You've got, uh, you know, the, the impetus to support Israel, particularly in an election year. At the same time, if you look at the younger voters, Gen Z and, and, and below, the demographics show that, uh, you know, that kind of demographic is unhappy with Biden's handling, tend to be more pro-Palestinian than pro-Israeli. So, you know, I think the, the administration is trying to read the tea leaves, read the polls here. But uh, instead of playing politics, the more important thing, the moral thing, would just to be to do what's right uh, and to apply maximum pressure on the Israelis to limit civilian casualties. Uh, and to, to not drop that as a talking point, right? This isn't just something on a checklist that you go down and say, oh, yeah, you know, we should mention that as well. Uh, this is essential, right? Because mm -hmm. the United States is associated with this conflict. And if you look at the numbers dead, this is not something that's going to fade from the headlines. This is uh, a moral stain on the United States. Uh, and so I think if the administration can wield influence, and we know that it has in the past, it needs to do so and it needs to continue applying that pressure and not stop. Mm. Uh, Sam, Amnesty International, uh, in a 
Oh, sorry, Patrick, do you want to jump in there? I was just going to jump in there. I think also, you know, if this has been happening in, in Ukraine, and obviously terrible things have happened in Ukraine at the Russian hands in terms of Ukrainian civilians, but if this was happening in Ukraine, the Western condemnation would be much higher. Um, and, and I think really you're looking at a, at a position now where the war crimes thing should be put on the table and kept on the table. That mm. if you cannot, you know, that we will come after your lawyers and we will come after your targeting cells. Uh, and this should be backed by the Gulf states as well, who for, you know, all intents and purposes are still pretty quiet. They've been helping, some of them have been helping with the negotiations, but the general consensus seems to be to box this problem off as best they can and get on with, you know, building their economies at the moment. So mm -hmm. I think internationally more can be done. Yeah. Okay, Sam, well, Definitely. as we've seen in, yeah, in, in the last few days, Amnesty International have put out a report saying that Israel does need to be investigated for possible war crimes. Is that something that you and your organisation agree with? Absolutely. Uh, of, of course, all war crimes, whether by Israel and Hamas, must be investigated. Uh, but there is overwhelming evidence that her, Israel has been committing war crimes. The blockade on food, water, fuel is itself a war crime. It is collective punishment, without a doubt. Indeed, there's a case that what Israel's doing, and many international lawyers who know much more about it than me, uh, that, that what Israel's doing can actually be classed as genocide. And the United States especially, but also UK, Germany and others that are arming Israel can also potentially be in the dock for aiding and abetting war crimes by supplying these weapons, continuing to spy weapons and components in the full knowledge of what Israel has been doing and going to continue to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I mean, the chances that Joe Biden would ever actually be arrested and brought to The Hague are vanishingly small. Yes. But I think that American officials, British officials, arms company officials who are making these decisions should be watching their backs legally because mm -hmm. the possibility that they could be in the frame for aiding and abetting war crimes in Gaza is, I think, very real, or at least it ought to be. OK. Colin, we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to finish with you. Is Israel... I guess, how does this end? Is Israel going to be allowed to continue bombing until its heart's content, do you think? Well, allowed by whom again? You know, who, who's the ultimate arbiter of, of this conflict? So I think unless the Israelis make this decision to stop, it, it's not going to. Uh, my question is, you know, to what end? What are the aims? Is it capturing and killing? Every Hamas high-value target uh, is it, you know, totally attempting to decimate Hamas's military infrastructure? Is that even possible? Uh, and again, I'll go back to what I've been saying since essentially October 8th. Unless this military approach and campaign uh, and operational objectives are tied to some kind of political element, uh, then it's all for naught because uh, the Israelis have a term for for what they've been doing, uh, which is mowing the grass, right? Uh, and this this can't go on any further. To do this every couple of years, to have these uh, all-out conflagrations in the region, there's got to be some kind of end. And I think unless there's a you know a sustainable political solution here coming out of the back end of this fighting, we'll be back here a year from now, you know, 18 months from now. There, there will be no end. Okay, thank you so I much. Oh, sorry, Patrick, do you want to jump in there very quickly? I was just going to say, I think Tim might have put his put it, put his uh, finger on the. Uh... The pulse there where, where he said that maybe it's actually just to, to drive them out now. Okay.
thank you. We've run out of time, but we really do appreciate uh, you joining us here on Inside Story. Colin Clark, Patrick Bury, and Sam Perlow Freeman, thank you. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fintan Monaghan, Veronica Pedrosa and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Afanzal Yaya. The programme was edited by Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Keneally and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, will Venezuela invade its neighbor, Guyana? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.